Greetings, and welcome to the 80 Level Roundtable Podcast. In each episode, host Koril Tokarev invites video game industry leaders to talk about the world of game development. No topic is off limits as long as it relates to video game development. New episodes are in the works, so remember to follow us or subscribe and share with someone you know will also enjoy the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. I know you're super busy with like with the launch and everything, and you have a lot of oh no time. worries. But it's uh, I think I got an email from John. I had a look at the game. I think it's very impressive, and I kind of wanted to kind of discuss more, learn more about your company and you and how you kind of started this development. It would be nice if you can do like a little intro to us for those who sure. haven't played the game yet. Yeah, no problem. Um, so we basically began, I, I um, had never developed a game before this one. Um, I actually worked in the film industry, um, uh, working in sort of like uh, coordination, production coordination and for VFX. Um, and I wasn't particularly enjoying, um, my role. It wasn't very creative. And I, I had this idea for a game for a very long time, um, for about five years before, um, to make this big, large scale, hardcore World War II game, um, that sort of, um, encouraged players to use teamwork. And at the time, uh, this is back in sort of 2015, Unreal Engine just became free to use. And that was kind of the thing that pushed me um to to download the engine and at least start tinkering around in it instead of just playing games i basically said um to myself okay well instead of playing games why don't you try and make one and let's see if there's actually a kind of a cool outcome from this um and so i began making just downloading some unreal engine marketplace packs and opening them up and trying to figure out how they worked and stuff like that and i i made some screenshots of um, French countryside and um, showed them to people on the Unreal Engine forums and I kind of pitched my idea and um, two guys who have been my partners to this day um, basically um, said, oh, those look not too bad. The concept sounds quite cool. We'll come and join you um, just, as a, just as a hobby project. No one was getting paid. Um, and we'll try and make this game. And obviously, it's a crazy, crazy, crazy idea trying to pitch a hundred player, a <laughs> hundred player, um, you know, uh, shooter with lots and lots of physics and massive maps and all this sort of thing. And we kind of just um, thought, well, you know, just take it slow, take it one kind of development goal at a time, and maybe we'll, maybe, maybe we'll get somewhere with it. And so we started work on it in 2015. And 2016 and then we kind of had just for a three-man team we had like you know we, we were kind of getting somewhere um and then a, a fourth and a fifth person joined us um and then we said okay well we should probably aim now for um like a kickstarter to try and give us some funding because otherwise we're gonna you know we'll, we'll never get this thing made and so we then um ran a kickstarter in 2017 at the end of 2017 and um, that that we were really fortunate, but that succeeded and that raised um, enough money for us to continue developing the game. And we we basically continued developing the game um, into 2018 and um, brought some more team members on. And it's just uh, and then uh, essentially we um, started working with Team 17, a publisher, 
um, who were able to kind of give us the QA and the support needed to be able to take the game through to completion. Um, so it's been quite a quite a crazy story of people who have never made a game before sort of, you know, they basically say don't start with an MMO as your first game. That's normally the joke is that, (laughs) you know, people start with an MMO and we kind of, we didn't start with an MMO, but we started with something similar. Um, But I think, yeah, yeah, our team is like a success story of, of, um, you know, I guess how easy it is to learn um, tools like Unreal Engine um, and uh, kind of work remotely. Like I've never, I've never met any of my colleagues in real life. I just wanted to say that, yeah, it's kind of like the illustration of how development became, I, I hate this word because everybody throws it around, but it's like more democratic. Like, Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the democratized buzzword, but it really is the case. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I mean, we really could not have done what we did without it. Um, and, so um, you, yeah. you you mentioned you kind of this whole story kind of started with you exploring Unreal and and playing with assets from Unreal Engine Marketplace. So, yeah. in 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 your perspective, um, you do you actually play around a lot with Unreal Engine Marketplace? And if you do, what kind of assets do you usually download? Are those you know, 3D environments and asset packs and stuff, or are you looking at some more complex plugins, SDKs, and you know? Um, so typically, so when we were first starting out, I basically just downloaded everything essentially to kind of have a look at have a look at everything. Obviously, trying to download what I considered to be like the best looking stuff. Um, and I've always been, I'm kind of the art director on Hell at Loose, and have very much. You know, I'm really interested in art and the way that different assets integrate together. And then obviously, how smart can you be with the assets? How how much can you reuse? Um, and trying to figure out philosophically, like, what matters most to the visuals of the game. Um, and I think, like, when you're starting out, you think that variation matters a lot. And then now we're kind of at the point where we realize, no, it's more about, you know, quality over quantity. Um, players don't normally sense repetition more than they sense just um, poor texture quality or, or an ugly model. Um, yeah. So I downloaded a lot of like 3D stuff in, in early days, the Maui um, photo scan, like forests were really cool. Um, oh yeah, he has the best. He has like, he has amazing art. Like it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's just, I mean, it's just phenomenal. It's, it's, it's incredible. And you can immediately tell it's his work whenever you see it. Um, but then um, uh, as we started to go on and on and on, like we had some marketplace packs in Unreal Engine at the start. So we didn't really use, um, we're very fortunate that we have um, two really fantastic senior developers who um, really knew what they were doing from kind of the start. So we didn't really ever have to li- rely on any kind of blueprinted or, um, or kind of marketplace SDK type stuff. Normally what we'd found is, that um, it was sort of, you know, written to be very general um, and, and nowhere near specific enough or optimized enough for our purposes with a hun- obviously a 100-player game. Um, so it was always, nearly always better to just um, write something specific for us rather than kind of purchase or, or, or look at um, Unreal Engine marketplace packs on the programming side. 
but on the um but i think you know the other the other really great stuff is done by i think his name's robert berg who's at embark um has done some incredible forest environments yeah i, I know him i know this guy yeah yeah he does the he's one of photo scanning stuff exactly yeah Ama amazing work as well so a lot of it um you know our, our goals from day one have just been to push towards kind of the closest thing we could get to a triple a outcome um and i think that studying the marketplace packs really helped us understand okay why are they doing that why are they doing this um you know and, and understanding good workflows good texture packing um yeah. understanding how particular mm -hmm. material mm -hmm. might work um and now I would say that we don't really, to be honest, we don't really download. Um, the, the, the closest thing we'd use to a marketplace pack now would be like Megascans. Um, yeah. And it would more be to really quickly um, like sort of gray box an area. Um, and then, you know, I think in the future we'll, we'll end up just, you know, using the models, particularly the rocks and the cliffs, we'll bake them get the macro normal and then just we're almost entirely moving towards a smart material workflow. Um, mm -hmm. You know, as much tiling and repetition as humanly possible um, so that we avoid like those really, really, you know, the VRAM budgets um, and we can stay, stay beneath them. So hell let loose has been really hard though, because, you know, there's still work in there from when we like, you know, didn't really understand what roughness levels should be or <laughs> what specular levels should be or things like that. Um, and now obviously we, we, you know, I think are very, very, you know, we, we're like any other kind of you know, moderately professional studio and know everything about texture packing and keeping master materials clean and consistent and stuff like that. So Hell Let Loose is a funny game because it's almost like um, two games in one. One game made by a, ma a really rookie studio and then a second game made by a studio that, you know, knows the power of procedural materials, knows the power of Unreal Engine. We understand, you know, the differences between, um, you know, draw calls versus instancing. Do you do instance or do you HLOD? All, all that's all those sort of kind of higher end complex mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm you know, uh, optimization problems. So, um, yeah, sorry. That was a bit of a long answer. Um, no, no, no. It's definitely been a journey. Kind of mentioned everything because I remember that I was covering your game back when it was still sort of like in the mod stage or like an experiment stage, mm. like, a, like in the early beginnings. And I saw, I saw some of it, or maybe somebody sent it to me like on some of the forums. And it's great to see that it's finally finished that you're actually launching that's that's amazing but um i have another question apart um like since we started talking about this whole idea of that it's become easier to build games um apart from the graphical part of it which you you kind of mentioned because you worked a lot with photogrammetry stuff that you downloaded and you kind of worked backwards uh, trying to understand how those things work inside those packs Mm -hmm. There is a large layer in Hell Let Loose that is connected with multiplayer because you have yes. this huge number of players and you have like RTC elements, RES elements there. Mm. And um, I'm wondering, did you did you actually guys write the whole the, the whole technology for that, or 
are you using maybe outside solutions like PlayFab or something else to kind of help run? Because it's a, it's a lot of coding to do. Yeah. So I can hand on heart say that all of it is built by two guys. <laughs> um, oh my God. James and Roman. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's uh, <laughs> unless you know how hard it is, it's hard to fully appreciate. And I'm not a programmer, but I understand how insane, you know, what, like, I very rarely get to get to sort of boast is the wrong word, but be proud of the work these guys have done in most contexts. Half the time, you know, we're having to sort of say, oh, we're going to be working on bugs and all the rest of it. But um, yeah, the entire game, all the infrastructure, all the everything was built by two people. Um, and to say that it has been a crazy accomplishment, I think. I mean, I know you understand. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Because yeah. I, see, I see your game and I think of like, I don't know, like Battlefield or something like that. It's a, it looks <laughs> amazing and it also runs these huge numbers. So... Yeah, it's, it's what those guys have accomplished is nothing short of like a miracle. It's basically like building a, mm -hmm. building a, you know, like a fighter jet while you're flying the fighter jet and you, you've got no, none of the normal tools that you would need to build it. Um, it it's been nuts and, and the way that they've done it. I, I mean, I think that honestly having a small team, having two guys who could just bounce off each other constantly um, and obviously we tried to schedule it from a production perspective where, um, we would always let them know, okay, guys, this could, this will telescope out in this way and that way, and this will become more than this. So don't code yourself into a corner. Um, but it's been crazy. I mean, like you look at the two years we've been developing this game and it's probably, I hope going to be the hardest game we ever make just because, you know, when we started the game, when, when we released into early access, we had three maps um, and no progression system, no customization. Uh, we couldn't even lean in the game. You can't even lean. Um, none of our animations used IK. Um, and the, these guys have literally overhauled I extremely fundamental infrastructure in the game Um Alongside, obviously, like multi-multi um, multi occupancy vehicles that are all physics-based, um, we didn't even have dismemberment in the game when we launched, so we've added <laughs> dismemberment. Um, yeah, it's it's crazy. It's really crazy what they've done. They've kind of, for better or worse, managed to. Yeah, I mean, I think implement. And uh, for yeah. anyone who's kind of listening to this, is that. Uh... All the features that you're kind of adding, that's extra work for the network, basically. If you're adding dismemberment, yes. that's extra work. So they have yes. to think about more, you know, elements and transition more data between machines and so on and so forth. So, yeah, it's a lot of very, I guess, sophisticated work done there just on the terms of, like, making this whole thing run. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... It, it's really hard to understate what they've accomplished with this. I mean, and to be honest, like from a technical perspective, most of the limitations we face with regard to like our kind of community feedback are, are quite frustrating because they generally tend to be Unreal Engine side limitations. So um, things like anti-aliasing, you know, we all know uh -huh. that Unreal, Unreal Engine, I mean, it's not, none of this is to obviously like, you know, um, 
do down uh, Unreal Engine or Epic because obviously it's 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 a tool that is meant to make like seventy different types of game, and it just so happens yeah. obviously that anti-aliasing for games where you're shooting like squinting um, with iron sights, it's just, you know, it's not not a great solution. It's pretty either jagged as FXAA or it's very blurry for the TAA. And we've tried to we've tried to compensate for that with lots and lots of different stuff. But um, mm-hmm. stuff like that, um, things like um, finding PhysX crashes, um, mm. both server-side and client-side. I mean, server-side PhysX crashes that can occur you know, it can occur one in 10,000 times and you're trying to replicate this with 100 players in a server. Um, Stuff like that has been really difficult because obviously you can't really... You can add logging, obviously, to try and catch physics crashes, but what's going on inside the physics is very difficult to kind of pin down. And when you have 100 players able to throw 100 grenades on, you know, while bazookas are flying around and... (laughs) On our vehicles as well. I don't know if you know, Kira, we've got, you can, we check angles and we bounce rounds off the, the, the side of vehicles mm-hmm. and those rounds stay alive so they can actually wow. blow up. Yeah. So it's that, that type of stuff tends to be the, the really hard stuff to fix. And then also there's some, there's some funny stuff in Unreal Engine. I don't want to get too into the weeds or bore anyone, but just even discovering that when you use spleens, when you use meshes in spleens in Unreal Engine 4, um, it basically duplicates, the it, it, it compounds the memory usage of the mesh because every time it creates a new instance of the collision of that warped mesh, it adds to it. And the only way that you can see it adding to it is by checking the memory size of the map or, or the level. Um, so that stumped us for a long time. We're trying to figure out like what every asset in the map is so much tinier than the total memory size. We finally worked out. It's not really documented anywhere. It wasn't back then that, um, by having like roads in the map that use static meshes, it wasn't just using one mesh over and over and over again. It was like, it was, you know, it was like using 10,000 different meshes. So stuff like that has just been insane to discover and try and like fix and try and figure out and um there are, as and you, you know there are so many nuances yeah i uh, just to kind of wrap this part about the unreal and uh, the services have you used any of the epic um online services that they're providing stuff that they announced i think a couple of years back We'll be back after a quick break. Ever thought modern video games should be more interesting? At the Gaming Blender, we take randomized genres, mechanics, and make a new game every episode. I've added permadeath. We have a survival game of a hardcore simulation, which could be House Flipper, and with the permadeath of XCOM. Then that all has to be an action adventure. Yes. Ooh, dear. Yes. And sometimes it doesn't quite work. And you have, you have a construction off over the course of the of the narrative a construction off the <laughs> way the way we can do this is that we ditch your idea entirely entirely check out the gaming blender on all your favorite podcast platforms now which which online services particularly uh, specifically i think it's like anti anti cheat and uh, some of the others like their servers server infrastructure and so on 
I don't believe so. I know that what we're using is we, we basically, like most first-person shooters in Unreal Engine, we took shooter game and then, um, you know, <laughs> to say we built off it, I mean, there's probably nothing left of shooter game now in the project, but it's a good first place for your movement component and, and a basic uh, weapon system. Um, but I mean, we're using we're using um, Easy Anti Cheat, which obviously has just been sort of acquired by Epic. Camu were acquired by Epic not too long ago. Yeah. So, um, nothing really. No, we're using Vivox for our voice solution, which has been really tricky. Um, Vivox mm. obviously is a Unity brand, and um, we they, Vivox have said to us that we are the people who are using Vivox in the most complicated, large scale, humanly possible. In so much as, you know we're joining a hundred players dynamically to a proximity channel, a unit channel, a command channel, um, and then having to like rotate them through them all as they die or change, change units or different things. So um, I think that's really about it. There's not, I mean, and obviously physics, but that's kind of the out of the box Epic, Epic solution, but nothing, yeah. nothing specifically, which we, we looked at steam audio, we've looked at other stuff and it's never quite, done what we would need it to do really i got it okay so let's switch gears a little bit and talk um talk about the game itself and kind of how it connects with the audience right because it's the kind of title i think that has a specific i wouldn't say niche audience but kind of has a specific audience that can uh, you know, I appreciate this uh, feature when the rounds are kind of bouncing off of, you know, edges of vehicles and that kind of stuff. So it's like mm. people who are into more authentic stuff, people who are enjoying this era, right? And enjoying these kind of more, I, I, I don't want to dump down kind of other games, but I think with yours, you kind of give more freedom for strategy a little bit more emphasized thinking on a battlefield so it's not just mm. you know uh shooting and uh, gunning people down as fast as you can so i'm wondering how did you start uh working with your audience especially with the when when the development process was so long and there was like um mm. you were looking for the team and so on so what were like the first points of connections with people so how did you start building this brand so to make sure that you will have the audience to kind of sell the game to and also maybe test and you know exchange ideas and figure things out yeah so no it's a very good question well basically um i spent a lot of time playing a game, a mod called project reality back in kind of 20, 2007 2008 2009 all the way through to 2000 and, 13, 14, although Project Reality still exists today. And, and Project Reality is essentially a, a mod for Battlefield 2 um, that, that kind of does some of the things you see in Hell at Loose, but, but um, in a kind of modern warfare context. Um, and the game was a really niche, it was a very niche game, still is a very niche game, um, but it was played by a whole bunch of people who um then went on to make other stuff which which is really fascinating so for instance i'm relatively sure that dean hall uh, rocket of daisy um was playing pr back in back in 2008 2009 and um and a couple of other guys i'm pretty sure brendan who's behind player known's battlegrounds was playing pr as well i might be wrong on brendan but but i know there are a lot of guys who um basically 
saw what Project Reality was doing, which was basically the fun of the game of the in a shooting game wasn't just that gameplay loop of killing people, but it was um, planning, teamwork, some kind of pulling off different strategies rather than just that mechanic of aiming and firing. Um, so that that kind of um, it was a starting place. I actually. Um, met the, the the kind of chief operating officer of my company, John, who also managed our community um, and marketing uh, in the early days. Um, he was a project reality player as well. Um, and then early on, when we were when we were thinking about like who might be interested in Hell Let Lose, because obviously you know at that point in time, this whole concept was very niche. Um, Squad were about the biggest title that was doing something similar to this at the time back in 2015. Um, and that had only just launched and that was considered very niche as well. So, and that was sort of a spiritual successor to Project Reality. Um, and so we, I had a big think and I thought there were a couple of content creators on YouTube who were, who were, you know, only the very few covering this, um, these types of games. So I reached out to a couple um, and the person who was the most excited was um, Blue Drake, um, who's a YouTuber um, who at the time was really covering Project Reality, covering Squad, covering lots of tactical shooters. And he was wonderful. He, he I, can't, I can't talk enough about how um, much of a favor he did us in the early days by basically shouting us out on Twitter and like bigging us up when we announced. And he gave us our initial following and I think other content creators saw him doing that and he and he um you know kind of continued to encourage them and basically um that i emailed him and um and he kind of came across the, he, he started reading about the game we had a chat and he's like oh i really like the sound of this and i kind of laid out our plan to him and so very early on he was the guy who gave us our first wind and we had a website set up where you could basically go and put your email down, sign up with your email if you wanted like additional news. And we figured that that would be a way that we could kind of at least keep a record of our community so that we could actually message to them and send them, send them stuff that they might be interested in. So very early on, I think it was like middle of, it was like June, 2017 is when he kind of made a video about us and kind of explained it. And and I always remember that first moment where like, you know, we had kind of, I think I woke up and there was like 500 people had signed up to our email. And then a couple of weeks later, it was like 20,000. And then a couple of weeks later, it was like 40,000. And um, all of a sudden we had this kind of at least enough following that we thought people would be interested in, in looking at it. Um, and then from there, we then emailed those people when we then set our Kickstarter up. Um, and, and that kind of was the community that's kind of, we've, we've still got many, many, many people from that Kickstarter community and that even pre-Kickstarter community who still um, follow the game. And, and some mm -hmm. of them have thousands of hours in the game. So that's sort of how it all kind of went. It went from us playing this one type of niche game to knowing guys who covered that niche game to talking to them about our game and then, um, you know, and at the time there wasn't really anything like our game, for, you know, for World War II. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's sort of how it happened. And, and that's how our initial following was built. So uh, to kind of, if we want to get, get some advice to developers, basically is you can launch this marketing PR campaign very early, right? You don't have to wait like till you 
physically launch they were you know start selling you can do this like three years before you even have a version that you want to sell right yeah i think that um i think that my advice would be you just need to figure out the way that you're going to bring the product you know bring the game out get the game released are you going to you know if if you have an investor or someone like that well then maybe you know, you might want to just work on it in private. I mean, we've had to work on Hell Let Loose and basically learn all the hardest lessons uh, of of our development life while also having a community kind of watching our every move, which has not made things super easy, although we, we love yeah. we love our community. It's certainly put a lot of pressure on. Um, whereas, you know, normally with development, there'll be lots of mistakes in development, but no one's watching you make those mistakes every second, <laughs> every yeah. week, every, every day. Um, so my, my advice would be figure out how to get there. Are you gonna if you're gonna crowdfund, know that with crowdfunding you always need to try and be as honest as humanly possible. Um, you know, as honest as you can be. Deception doesn't get you anywhere. Um, you know, and with Hell Let Loose, every mistake we've made, we've kind of said, Yeah, that was a mistake. That wasn't our intention, or yeah, you know, that that went wrong. We're sorry about that, we'll try and fix that. And we have tried to be, you know, absolutely just tell the truth the whole way through. Um, and then, um, you know, but then obviously if, if you're able to, to kind of, um, bring the game out before then, I think you would, uh, if you're able to bring the game out without ha having to sort of bring a massive community along with you who have funded it, I think then, um, you, you probably would want to start, um, talking to, you know, people who play these games for a living. I mean, content creators and, and different people like that. And, really get them to to try it out and give a sense of it and what they like about it and then listen to the things that they say. I mean, I think that even if we didn't need to crowdfund any future games, which, you know, which we we, we may very well be in a position where we don't need to, um, we would still look to build a community of testers in the early days who might be interested in playing um, whatever type of game it is we're developing because I, I think that, um, you always want, it's always going to be easier for you when you launch, knowing that people have, other than you have played it and you've been able to have a chance to listen to their feedback. And, and what you'll find is most players, you know, your, the, the strength of your pitch is also going to give you an idea of how easy it's going to be to, to sell this, whether you're talking to, I think, journalists, media, or you're just talking to friends. If you're struggling to get people in to, to play test your game, I think you probably need yeah. to think about whether or not the pitch is strong enough, if the idea is strong enough. Um, so that's really helpful for us is that, you know, um, I think really having to explain the game, even to Blue Drake back in the day, his name's Connor and he, he's since become a really good friend, but um, even since being able to, you know, have to really explain the core of the game to him as fast as possible and then and then explain it again in the Kickstarter and then explain it to testers and then explain everything all the time, um, it really refines your ability to understand what excites people about your game. So I would really recommend that even if you don't need to do it, you really want to get a core group of people who who don't care really whether it succeeds or fails to try and give you some honest feedback um, because yeah, you'll, you'll be able to make sure you don't fall in any pits or traps um, as, as soon as possible in the development process. Yeah. It, it, so my question is like, you have this very nice strategy where you basically took the audience that already existed and you knew 
very well how it felt, I guess, what kind of games they like to play. Then you worked on top of this with the influencer who helped promote your idea and kind of tell, I don't want to say promote, just communicate your idea yeah. to like the audience. Then you got yourself a list of subscribers, potential buyers, right? And then you yeah. launched a, a Kickstarter campaign. So was this, um, as any good plan, was it planned all along or were you just kind of juggling and trying to figure out how to do this while you were developing? Or or did you have a clear vision of how you're gonna go into the marketing? We we did have a really clear vision of how we were gonna go in. Um, and, and the reason we had a clear vision is we'd seen other studios do it. Um, and we'd okay. seen Battalion 1944 do it. We'd seen Days of War do it. We'd seen uh, Squad uh, do it. So we'd seen several titles um, go down this path before, which obviously takes a lot of the fear out of it. Um, and so we did have a very sort of clear plan, like, you know, with our Kickstarter, we wanted to make sure we had a working prototype so that when we were making promises in our Kickstarter, we kind of roughly knew what we could, not even roughly, we knew exactly what we could kind of um, offer to them. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we, we went in eyes wide open. Um, and I think you really want to do that. I think you want to make sure you don't make, you don't make huge, huge, huge promises that, um, that you can't keep. Um, I think that'll, that'll inevitably come back to hurt you later on. It's, you know, mm -hmm. it, that you, you, you might have a short-term gain, but I think you'll have a long-term loss in doing so. So that was all, yeah, it was really all very planned and we were extremely fortunate that each, each stage kind of um, paid off. I mean, I think for, for people who are looking at doing something like this, um, no matter the game, you know, there is someone already playing that type of game and, and if I was to make any kind of game, be it like a card game or a roguelite or something like that, you know, I would probably do something similar. I would I would look at what type of, you know, what what my favorite roguelite games are not giving me as an experience, what their weaknesses might be, yeah. um, you know, and then I would look at the people who cover them and who play them all the time. Maybe Co-Carnage on Twitch loves playing roguelites. Um, there are some really other interesting kind of YouTubers who play them. Um, and then I might not, you know, I might not be able to get through to some of the really big YouTubers. So I might contact some of the smaller guys, but who have a dedicated following, but, but, you know, a lot of, a lot of YouTubers and Twitch, um, Twitch streamers, you know, they love finding new content. They love finding exciting new things to talk about because it's something for them, you know, something for them to have a look at, something for them to be excited about. Um, so I think that there's, you know, that's a really um, I wouldn't say easy, but I'd say it's a really yeah. great way of um, yeah communicating that a new game is coming to to a potential yeah. audience who who will be excited to see what it's like. Yeah, yeah, I think when when you're kind of talking about this and it all sounds very smooth and kind of you know well thought through and so on, but uh, I agree with you. It probably wasn't very easy <laughs> because there. Are, no, I no, no, definitely no. not. No, I mean, yeah. writing the email to Blue Drake, I think it was like a 750 or maybe a thousand word email. And yeah. I sent out like 12 of them. And I think two guys came back to me and actually had read their email. So, mm -hmm. you know, you think, well, what happened if, if neither of those guys had read their email? Um, 
you know, and it does, you, you, uh, that's not to say that you can just enact a plan and it comes true hundred percent. Obviously it's, you know, I recognize that there's a lot of luck and good fortune in it. And obviously, you know, a huge amount of hard work as well. I think, yeah, I think something that um, a lot of developers would be really good to, to know is that, you know, even if you launch your game and it doesn't go exactly as you want, or it doesn't go very well. Um, as long as you're not going to about to go bankrupt within a month, um, you know, gamers are pretty happy to try something out again, see if it's been improved. Um, I think most of the time a game is only over when, when the developer says it's over really. Um, you know, yeah. I think that's something as well that you kind of learn. It takes a bit of the fear out of launching them because, um, so long as you just keep communicating and you let your, that you let your player base know, okay, guys, we, we don't like this. We like this. We're going to fix this. And you keep listening to them. Um, they will come back and they'll try it out again. Um, and that's the lesson I, we've I, learned with Hell Let Loose. Yeah. I think the approach that you kind of described was um, basically studying your competitors piece, studying and understanding what the market plays and likes and how do they play it and what do they want and so on. It's a, Kind of like the, the approach that is used everywhere in business. If you if you look around, like any any big companies or small companies, and it's also what makes it valuable is that it gives you an understanding of what can you expect. So you understand how many players are there who are playing like roguelikes of a certain type, and then you understand how many people are actually watching those things on YouTube. So it gives you some numbers which you can put in your business plan and then show to a potential investor. And it makes life so much easier than if you're just coming from, you know, you meet someone on the game event and say, hey, I have this wonderful idea for a game, but I have no idea if anybody's going to buy it. Right. So th this makes it like more real even. Definitely, definitely. And, 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 you know, this stuff also makes you feel calmer. It makes you know where you, you know, exactly what you said. It, it gives you a sense of expectation and knowing like, okay, if I, we do this, then, you know, it'll probably go really well. If we do this, it'll probably go average. And then if we, you know, if we don't do this most of the time, it'll, it won't go very well. So um, it's definitely, it's definitely difficult mix. It, it, it's a diff difficult balance to get because obviously normally, you start to run out of time or you don't have the right people doing things or, you know, you guys just can't figure out a problem. Um, but definitely, I mean, I think like, you know, at the start of making hell let loose, this type of game, I mean, Tarkov didn't exist then and PUBG didn't exist then. So the, the closest thing to sort of like being a really, you know, playing a really punishing game was probably playing DayZ. Um, yeah. And so, you know, if I pitched hell let loose to people, they'd be like, mm, that's too hardcore. No one's going to want to buy it. Um, whereas now, obviously, like, I think, you know, more than a million people have bought hell that loose. So obviously there's, there's a market there. Um, and then anyone who wants to sort of make a, a game in the tactical hardcore shooter genre could simply just like, look at hell that loose, look at rising storm, look at squad, look at red orchestra, look at all of these games. And exactly as you said, put together a list. And I mean, I think we're just living in quite an amazing age right now where, you know, you you can be a you know I won't say hell that loses a massive game I think it will be a bigger game when we go on console but you know we're not a huge game and even then we're still you know you're still able to there's still a massive market out there there's still tons of players who you know 
even if you've sold, you know, millions of copies, people will still be discovering your game um, mm. each day. I mean, it's just amazing. Honestly, it's, it's, it's something that's just staggering. Um, you know, and you look at games like Rust or you know, Counter-Strike that have sold hundreds of millions of copies. I think Rust is probably close to 100 million. Um, yeah. And it just makes you realize, like, you know, how many people, how many, how many players there are uh, in the world. And, it, and, you know, it should make everyone feel very optimistic in this industry, I think. So you, you mentioned, um, mentioned consoles, and I wanted to ask you about how do you feel about uh, different platforms and uh, where do you want to sell your game? Basically, how do you see these sales going? Like, are you selling only on Steam? Do you want to go to other stores, like, I don't know, like Epic's one? Or how do you feel about the potential of going on, like, PlayStation 5 or maybe Switch or all those places. How do you see those games kind of, you know, living in this ecosystem where there is still a bunch of different places where you can buy? Um, so I think fundamentally, you know, with Hell Let Loose, it's, it's, you know, it started out as a PC game. We had a really kind of grassroots PC backing. And obviously we're on PC and Steam because it's such an, it, you know, compared to, talking to platform holders like Microsoft or Sony, it's obviously much lower barrier to entry. And so that's sort of where we started. And I'd, I'd encourage most people to kind of start there because, you know, um, you, you can, I think it's like a hundred bucks and you can register your project pr product on Steam, your, your project on Steam. Um, and so that's sort of where we started. Um, we'd love to go to other PC platforms like Epic Store and other places like that, but just, we really need to find the time to be able to hook in a, the different subsystem. At the time of Epic launching, um, they didn't quite have the subsystem needed to support a game like Hell Let Loose. Um, but we're pretty, you know, we're pretty agnostic on whichever platform we're on. We, we're just happy, obviously, that that more players are jumping in the game. Um, in terms of in terms of the console, I think that you know Hell Let Loose is. Console market, I think, has changed a huge amount. I mean, that used to always be sort of a quote-unquote lean-back experience where you'd only ever sort of play FIFA or, or maybe like kind of Call of Duty or something very fast on the console. But now you can really see, you know, with games like Hunt Showdown being on console and just the general and player-unknown's battlegrounds, players on console also now all have microphones. You know, they all have headsets. They all have microphones. Um, and so we feel that, you know, now's kind of the time to introduce, you know, really the, if, you know, I think possibly one of the first tactical hardcore shooters to the console, um, mm -hmm. in Hell Let Loose and see, and see what they think. So we're, we're quietly hoping that, that, um, you know, that, that the same players who have resonated, uh, with Hell Let Loose on PC will exist on console. Um, and we think so far, just from seeing sort of comments and some sentiment and things like that, that that um, there will be players um, on on PlayStation on Xbox who are excited to to jump in the game. I think that Twitch, uh, sorry, Twitch uh, Switch is um, you know probably not something we'd really go near with Hell at Loose, just because it's you know Hell at Loose is so graphically and and network intensive. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think you know. I've said it before, but ga games, you know, are a young art form. Then, you know, they haven't really been around for very long. Um, 
and I think what Hell at Loose kind of represents, and obviously other games, Armor, Squad, um, lots of different games, but represent kind of the first-person shooter for um, slightly older players, people who grew up with first-person shooters, but now are kind of keen to challenge themselves probably a little bit more, um, you know, intellectually on the teamwork side. That's not to say that obviously Call of Duty or other games are not intellectual, but in a different way. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, less about reflex and more about, yeah. you know, forward planning and things like that. So yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's hard to know if a new audience is evolving for these games or if, um, you know, and I count myself amongst them, an audience that would have not been interested 10, 15 years ago and was only interested in sort of Modern Warfare 1 or Call of Duty 3, Call yeah. of Duty 2 has now grown up. And, and to be honest, we're probably less, <laughs> our reflexes are nowhere near as good as they were. And so now we're also looking for, a, we still love first person shooters, but we're looking for an experience that's a little bit more than just um, reflexes and shooting. So I think yeah. that's kind of the way we're thinking about it is, you know, um, the, the, these players exist. It's now just time for us to introduce them to something that they might be interested in, in trying yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't agree with you more. Like the story that you kind of told me right now, it kind of reminded me a lot about the story of Wargaming, like the, the company that created mm. uh, World of Tanks. Because their audience is very similar. And uh, I think they discovered it when they saw how you know computer games kind of developed in in the region because they started in, in russian former soviet republics and it kind of blew at the same time basically older people and younger people got involved with video games at the same time and they were all playing mm. like quake or something and so on and obviously younger people started destroying older like 30 or 40 year old guys and uh, they were kind of like you know in some kind of ghetto that everybody was harassing them and so on but at the same time they also had the money <laughs> to invest in a game mm, and that's mm. where war gaming kind of found out this niche and work with those guys and now enjoys this tremendous success so i i totally agree with you that even on consoles although some people might suggest there's only kids playing fortnite on like playstation or something there are people who have different tastes and uh, yes. they have different needs in in whatever they want from games and maybe some of this is what you're providing and that's why you need to know your market basically i guess mm. if you want to summarize our interview for uh you know for the listeners and readers is basically you need to you know you need to understand the person whom you're trying to entertain you need Definitely. to understand what kind of you know yeah, yeah, no, no, I, I, I completely agree. It was really interesting, actually. I, I knew a little bit about wargaming, but I didn't realize that that, that dynamic had existed. Um, but no, it, yeah. yeah, very, very similar. I mean, I mean, you think about it, right? And uh, and we are living in a world where no one over the age of sort of forty-five, and I mean this on a on a generalized population scale, no one over the age of forty-five is is a gamer in so much as they are. Gen Z, you know, in so much as Gen Z and earlier are. So I'm a, I'm a millennial, kind of a, a mid-millennial. And when I was at school, sort of maybe one or two in five would play video games and, and we wouldn't talk about it. It wasn't like, we would talk about it with each other, 
but it, you were sort of, you know, you were in a minority, I think, of the people who really, you know, of, of what the interests of your age group were. Whereas now I meet people who are in primary school and it's like if uh, primary school, high school, and if you don't play games, you know, it's almost like the, the, the population, the, the um, proportions of inverse now. So it's like one in five doesn't play games. Um, yeah. I mean, and I can only imagine what it's going to be like again, when, you know, um, when our generation is, is in their seventies and eighties, I mean, you're almost going to have sort of nine in 10 people playing games, which is something that we've never seen before in world history. It's really, I think it's something that everyone's kind of underestimating that if you think video games are big now, I mean, just wait 40 or 50 years. I mean, every single generation is going to be playing them. And I guess another interesting question is, what does a video game for like a 75 year old or an 85 year old look like? I'm sure it's, they're going to have different tastes, you know, to someone who is 14 and, and likes playing a game like Fortnite, which is obviously super fast paced. Um, so I find that really interesting because instead of playing like bridge or Mahjong or, or kind of the card games that we would normally associate with like retired people, you know, I'm sure that we'll be playing video games. Um, and so, yeah, I find, I find all of that really, really interesting. And to your point as well, you know, in terms of the market, I think, you know, you never want to look at a market or, you know, and by a market, I mean console players or whoever and say that because something doesn't exist, it's because it shouldn't exist. It may be that, you know, you've actually just identified a perfect place, a perfect niche for your, for your game. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, definitely. I agree. I agree. Totally. Totally. Well, mm -hmm. Max, thank you so much for your time. I think I took an hour. So, oh, no, um, my pleasure, Carol. My really pleasure. appreciate it. Thanks for enjoying another episode of the 80 Level Roundtable podcast. Check out upcoming episodes on the 80 Level website at 80.lv. Join our career site at 80.lv slash RFP. And share our podcast with friends and on your social networks.